I don't know. You said you were nervous that a Cuban and a New Yorker were going to be on a podcast with a boring evangelical. Well, to be I was fair, so well behaved. I, I'll be honest with you, I, so well behaved. I, I did. You know? I did not say nervous. I just said I was going to have my work cut out for me for keeping our conversation <laughs> focused. But you two did very well. I didn't have to like uh, pull us back from too many rabbit trails. So this was good. You guys nailed it. Welcome to Crossing Phase, the podcast with a Christian and a Muslim talking religion and politics. Up today with my friend John Pinna and myself, Matt Hawkins, we have our very good friend, Christina Ariaga. Christina, who, if you're not familiar with, is one of my favorite voices in the religious freedom space and religious and uh, also the human rights space. And Christina has a little bit of a story to tell us, and we're going to get into that because she recently resigned her position as commissioner on the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom. We're going to get into what that is and what her concerns are. Uh, but first, I just want to welcome her to the program and talk a little bit about um, her background and uh, both professionally and personally and uh, get to know her a bit. Christina, welcome to Crossing Face. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm a big fan of the program, so I'm very excited to be on. I appreciate it. Maybe our first listener, uh, our qualified, our kind of confirmed listener to the program that's that's come on as a guest. Uh, so John and I really appreciate it. John, uh, how's it going over there? Where are you today? It's not too bad. I'm in I'm in Washington. I'm not in any exotic in exotic places, you know. So and I'm excited to have someone who, you know, regardless of what, you know, is it's not right, it's not left, it's not Republican or Democrat, but someone who's standing up for something that's right, and uh, no matter what the the consequences are so you know christina's uh, it's exciting to have her on on the program yeah um and among christina's illustrative career she was also executive director for a while for a law firm that many religious freedom advocates are familiar with beckett law and she was there for a number of years like what eight years i think christina 22 years 22 years with beckett okay yeah. okay i good. was the executive director for the last seven right okay Forgive my math on that, and uh, then you've gone on to do some other things, and including this USERF position. But what uh, give people a little bit of a sense of your family and your background? Like, why do you care so much about this thing called religious freedom, and in particular, international religious freedom? I'm sure you can hear my accent. I'm Cuban American. Uh, my father uh, passed away a few years ago. He's was Cuban, and he had to uh, go into exile because of Fidel Castro. And my mother is German, and she was in a concentration camp for some of her life. Goodness. So we grew up with an enormously strong commitment to freedom and with gratitude to be able to live in the freest country in the world. My father was a great man and a, a great lover of all things American. He never bought a foreign car. He was uh -huh. so grateful that the States had welcomed him that he would only drive American-made cars. And he used to tell us all the time when we, we had no money growing up because my both my parents had gone into exile with absolutely nothing. My father didn't speak English when he came to this country. He had to learn. And my mother made do with, with what we had. But he always said, we're rich people temporarily without any cash. And he was, he was great. He thought that because we lived in the freest country in the world, we were already rich enough and we would make our fortune. And he was able to make enough money to send us to school and everything else. But 
I loved being able to, to grow up with that feeling of gratitude for freedom, but also with a duty to defend those freedoms. Talk to us about what exactly is this thing called USERF. It's called the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom. I will post kind of an explainer and in the show notes, but give folks just kind of the, uh, the bird's eye view of what this thing is that you were a part of up until recently. 20 years ago, members of Congress started to see that our own State Department, when traveling abroad and when engaging in multilateral negotiations, uh, they were not bringing up religious freedom. They were no longer advocating for individuals who have been incarcerated, detained, tortured because of their religious beliefs. So Congress came up with a brilliant idea. And actually, USERV is the only agency in the entire world that does this. USERV was created with the mandate of monitoring religious freedom worldwide. Mm -hmm making policy recommendations to Congress, the Department of State, and the White House. And the genius of the architects of USERV is that they knew bureaucrats do not fight bureaucracy, and they wanted people who would be disruptors. So the agency was created with nine commissioners who would be unpaid part-time volunteers and would supervise or direct a staff of about 15 government workers who would then issue reports on countries of particular concern. Actually, I'd like to interject for a moment. My experience yeah, yeah, with uh, my experience with you uh, sort, of, uh, sort of bare bones, it was uh, back in the reauthorization in 2011, 2012. But I think you, there's a there's a point that you made that it's, let's suss out a little bit. The commissioner's in the military, it's called asymmetrical warfare. There's a, there's a, the independence, the volunteer quality of that, of the commissioners allows them a certain amount of independence to where they're not held by uh, uh, sort of the, the bureaucratic elements, but also they don't have a job to lose because they're volunteers. And that, and it allows them to be very disruptive. The words, the word your term you used in the military is called asymmetrical warfare, where they're, you, know, you may not be able to attack an issue right on, head on, but you were able to, to hit the target on multiple areas uh, on the peripherals to the point where you, you're able to, to, to push your, your cause over the edge. Could you, could you elaborate just a little bit on that? Only because it's, I think it's such an important quality of the commissioners and the independence of the commissioners and the bipartisan quality of the commissioners. I've seen commissioners write an op-ed, and as a result of that op-ed, a despot country will open a prison door for someone who was in prison uh, unjustly. I have seen a, a tweet uh, regarding a communist Cuban who was repressing a pastor uh, rattle her in such a way that, that she has now signaled that she's changing her mind. The ability of commissioners to focus with laser-like precision on religious freedom and be able to speak out about these issues is one of the ways that religious advocacy has advanced in the United States. Let me let me give you another example. We can. It's an innovative. It's an innovative technology. That the the idea uh, that 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 was that was outlined in IRFA, the International Religious Freedom Act, for these commissioners. It's just an innovation that that is so important, and it speaks to one of the reasons why you resigned. So so please elaborate. Uh, sure. So the. In my 25 years of advocating for religious freedom, I have found that every time that religious freedom 
is subject to repression. It's either tyrants or bureaucrats. Mm. In other words, sometimes yeah. someone like Putin or Erdogan, but sometimes is the zoning commissioner in your state that wants the city to pay more taxes. And because churches, synagogues, mosques don't pay taxes, then they'll push the, the synagogue or the mosque to give up their land to build a Costco. And many times these bureaucrats uh, abuse the law or use it in their favor. And many times these communities have no idea what their legal rights are. So bureaucrats are tremendously danger, dangerous to our freedom. In Cuba, for instance, after Fidel Castro took over, there was something called the Committee for the Defense of the Revolution. And that was a person in your block who would make sure that when someone came to visit you, that you had requested the permission from the state, that you knew that this person was also a revolutionary. And this CDR person, Committee for the Defense of the Revolution person, could come into your home and ask you where you purchase your food and ask you for the receipts. This is a person who was in charge of control. And unfortunately, there are a lot of petty bureaucrats in our government that are able to essentially disrupt good things. And instead of working for the mission and enabling the mission, there are people who just want to control you. And unfortunately, I have found, I have run across a number of those people in government in Washington. Well, and it's a, it's a unique structure because uh, some people look at you serve, and then they look at the IRF department in um, State Department, uh, currently filled by Ambassador Brownback, and they think it's duplicative. Uh, obviously, the three of us here don't see it as duplicative because the IRF office uh, still has to wrangle with State Department obligations to include diplomacy, right, in their calculations and in their uh, speech and and in their actions as a government entity. Whereas you serve, you guys can hit pretty hard and pretty vocally um, and don't have that restriction. So I think that's part of the unique design as well. Well, and hold our own institutions accountable. So there's been times when USERF has held the State Department accountable yeah. or AID or the, the White House accountable for what they you know, what they say in international religious freedom and what they're, what they're supposed to be promoting uh, in alignment with IRFA. So, but let's, you know, Christina, yeah, hit, hit, you know, hit, hit us back. I'm, I'm, I'm excited that you're here. And you're, you're, you're schooling us on all this on this most recent event with you, sir. I, one of the, the most moving moments I had while serving as commissioner was being in another country with the minister um, in charge of religion uh, with Republican and Democrat colleagues. And this is right after the president was elected. And the, the minister asked a Republican appointee, what will you do if President Trump doesn't live up to his campaign promises? And the Republican appointee said, well, then we'll criticize him. And this minister was absolutely shocked that someone would criticize people from their own party. And the beauty of democracy is precisely that, that commissioners in the past have stood up for what was right and have criticized members of their own parties for not defending those around the world who suffer, who die, who are persecuted for their religious freedom. Understanding that religious freedom is not a tool, that religious freedom is important for peace and for global stability, that religious freedom is a canary in the coal mine. 
if religious freedom dies, we know for a fact from a lot of research that the country that is repressing people who live according to their deeply held convictions is heading into the direction of instability. So the fact that commissioners are appointed by the Republicans and the Democrats and they criticize their own party is one of the beautiful things that make USERP so spectacular. That's something that the Department of State understandably could not do, but we as commissioners at USERP could do. So that brings us, I think, to the next question, which is you wrote in the Wall Street Journal recently why you're leaving the commission. So if you believe the commission is uh, as important as it is and that you've seen action as a commissioner um, do some really good things for some really persecuted people, let's get into why you left. Uh, What, from your vantage point, were you seeing? I think a lot of this comes from the Senate, but you have uh, eyes and ears uh, in other places. So walk us through uh, your recent departure. The hallmark of user, the ability for commissioners to to tweet and to op-ed without permission slip from a bureaucracy like the Department of State, And I saw two things happening at the same time. First issue is that the Senate drafted a bill and that was introduced by Senators Rubio, Coons, Durbin, and Gardner. Yeah. Had shackled commissioners made the government watchdog into a government lapdog and unilaterally gave the ability for the staff at USERV to sue commissioners with the power of the United States government behind them. Uh, The bill was absurd. It was ridiculous. It reminded me of the Committee for the Defense of the Revolution. And not a single Republican or Democrat commissioner had seen the bill before it was... um, presented only a few days before markup. And as you know, a reauthorization means a piece of legislation that makes it possible for an agency to continue because it provides funding. It oftentimes has serious changes. And those pieces of legislation normally are debated. They're normally hearings. None of that happened before this bill came forward. So that was issue number one, that substantively the bill shackled the commissioners Issue number two was very grave, and that is that it extended the mission of USERP and therefore it diluted it altogether. Uh-huh. And it extended it with words that sound but are code for something else. Uh-huh. The Senate called for the commission to monitor abuse of religion in order to violate human rights. And my friends, that means, for instance, John, Uh, that a commissioner who was ideological opposed to Islam, for instance, could accuse Islam of violating the rights of children because of their circumcision practices. Same with the Jewish tradition. Mm -hmm. And Matt, uh, as a conservative Christian, as an evangelical, the user could come after a church that you pastored uh, abroad if you, for instance, violated, quote unquote, the rights of the LGBTQ plus community. Right. So someone could easily, someone could bring a, a pig into a halal butchery and say, you're violating my religious, my, my religious freedom by not slaughtering it. Absolutely. But worse than that, you, sir, has the megaphone of the most powerful country in the world. So right. this is not just a private citizen uh, saying uh, 
for instance, uh, in, in Germany, that the Jewish community should no longer be allowed to uh, circumcise their children. This is the U.S. government allowing it to intrude and essentially violate the religious freedom rights of individuals. There's something to understand, and that is that religious freedom protects people. It doesn't protect religion. And religious freedom is not about who God is. It's about who we are. Mm. Human beings are born with the right to search for the truth. And whether that truth takes them to organized religion or no religion at all, it should be free from government intervention. And by introducing the abuse of religion clause in the mandate of the commission, it the loophole it created would violate religious freedom. And that is something I could not sit on my hands and watch that happen. And we've seen this happen before with with this, like I always used to talk about the sister organization, USIP, United States Institute for Peace, where they're talking about so many different subjects. There's, uh, you know, and maybe this is controversial, so maybe I should say, but, but the point is, is what USIP is to religion, USIP is to war, right? The United States Institute for Peace. And it, it is broad because it's peace, um, but there's been so many subjects that even here in the Beltway, a lot of us joke about, well, what are they talking about? And all they do is talk about issues, but, but they don't focus, have that laser, same same laser focus that, that, that USERF has. But I also think that there's another element here is that, you know, it's a founding principle of our country, religious freedom, and the whole uh, point of of the IRFA uh, and one of the key components and the reasons why it's such a bipartisan issue was passed was because it is a founding principle that has uh, the, the sort of true tenets of freedom, whether it's to choose, believe, not believe, you know, and, 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 and be your own person religiously. And if you start in, in it's called mission creep, all right, yeah. in the, the term. So if you start adding in and stacking different issues, you end up, talking about a lot of things, but doing nothing. And I, and, and is that, is that a fair, a fair assessment of the, the nervousness that you have with this, this new addition, the loophole, as you call it? It's more than mission creep. It is a way to destroy the commission from within by introducing ideological arguments into an agency that until now has operated largely as one of the last places in Washington where you can have true bipartisanship. I, in the last three years, I have never, not once, experienced any partisanship. And you know what they say about Washington, right? Washington is Hollywood for the ugly. There are a lot of people with big egos and there are a lot of people who are driven solely by their political affiliation. That was not the case at USERP. And that's also what made it a powerful agency. Hmm. The Senate, not only in the expansion of the mission, but also in the way that it wants to control commissioners, even attending meetings, will essentially destroy any strength that came from nonpartisanship. Okay. And, and, and the staff issue you mentioned is, is, has been that's been going on for years. I remember for the last 10 years, the staff has always tried to exert authority over the, over the commissioners. Uh, and because of the volunteer nature uh, of the commissioners and the bipartisan uh, diversity and faith diversity, it's been very difficult because it's not controlled like, like a, a an agency bureau, um, like at the department of state. So, uh, you know, can you speak a little bit about how, the, the difference in how unique that 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 quality is of the commissioners and their independence from staff. Sure, I'll give you an example of a story 
story of something that happened to me. I mean, I, unfortunately, I can give you like 50 examples, but I think this is the one that uh, perhaps will personalize, humanize, and dramatize what the situation is between commissioners and the staff. You have a lot of people on the staff who are passionate and devoted uh, to religious freedom. Unfortunately, you also have some people on staff that are bureaucrats and they're devoted to keeping their job. And that means that taking risks is not something that they want to do. Mm. And certainly having commissioners go out there and create work for them is something that they don't want to do. So Senator Harry Reid's appointee, whose name is Sandy Jolly, uh, and she's no longer on the commission, her, she wasn't, her term wasn't renewed, uh, and I am Speaker Ryan's appointee, were slotted to go to Turkey in 2017. And I, we went to State Department, we had several briefings, not a single person mentioned the world, the, the, the name of Andrew Brunson. As you know, Pastor Andrew Brunson is someone who pastored a church in Izmir, Turkey for 23 years. He was detained and then arrested uh, by Erdogan after 18 months of being incarcerated. Uh, the prosecution called for him to spend 35 years in prison, essentially the rest of his life. He was accused of being a spy and he became subject to hostage diplomacy. At the time, he was an unknown pastor and an unknown prisoner. So Sandy and I received all briefings. No one mentioned Andrew Brunson. I happened to run into a friend at the Department of State in the hallway. She said, I heard you're going to Turkey. What are you going to do about Andrew Brunson? She told me about him. Sandy and I, Democrat and Republican, insisted on going to see him in prison. The user staff didn't want us to go. The State Department people said he's in prison because he's an American, not because he's a pastor. You shouldn't go. We prevailed. We were the first Americans, aside from his wife and the embassy staff, that were able to meet with him. And we were able to publicize his case. When we met with Andrew in the, the Turkish prison, by the way, I was strip searched on the way in. I had never had that experience before. It was super fun. Uh, when when <laughs> we met with him, when we met with him, his biggest fear was to be forgotten. And commissioners uh, from USERF were able to advocate for him. But this was in spite people at USERF, in spite people for State Department. Some people at USERF told me that because he was an American and we were an international commission, we were not to advocate for him. Uh, Luckily, commissioners, Democrats and Republicans, voted in favor of advocating for him. And we were able to support his case uh, and until he was uh, not released. Uh, he was found guilty, but there was a commissioner present at the time who flew back with him to freedom to the United States. And none of this is possible under the new bill. Commissioners will be subject to, whenever there are disagreements with staff, the staff can press church, uh, charges against any commissioner. Wow. That's crazy. I mean, we John and I have seen, and Christine, you've probably seen in the past, uh, efforts to amend USERF in such a way that it hamstrings their work and kind of messes with the model, but this is a, like particularly, especially unique, even though I've seen this iteration two or three times. <laughs> this is the idea that someone could, a commissioner could be sued over this stuff. Essentially, it's pro it's trying to you bring the bureaucracy of the U.S. government into the commission and, and, and exert authority over it. I mean, something that I know that Matthew's been trying to do, he's saying he's now, like, now are you going to start re putting revisions on our dialogue so that you can put sanctions on me. Right, exactly. What I say. <laughs> and, and I will adopt you as, as a prisoner of conscience, uh, John, if that happens. I think freedom of speech, 
look, the, the idea that we are such feeble creatures that we cannot stand disagreement, that no one can speak to us about something that we may disagree on, this is going to make us into morons. And Lamott, the writer, the Christian writer, said something along these lines. My mind is like a bad neighborhood where I would rather not be alone. I don't want to be alone in my mind all the time. And unfortunately, the bureaucrat fears disagreement. The bureaucrat fears innovation. Yeah. And I'm allergic to bureaucracy, but I'm even more allergic to being silenced. I will not allow anyone to be silenced. This doesn't mean that you can be rude, right. but certainly uh, silencing works against freedom. I mean, Elie Wiesel said silence only benefits the oppressor. You have to take sides on these issues. And if you sit on your hands, silence becomes a form of complicity. And unfortunately, at the commission, I see that all the time. Look, thank you for doing a podcast. This is the way that people talk to each other now and people find out about issues and people have discussions. ISIS and USERF were started 12 months apart. How come, how come the bad guys are so good at technology that in the last 11 months, ISIS had 2 million mentions and you have had less than 2,000? How come the bad guys are much better in technology than the good guys? Yeah. Goodness oh, gracious, they, Christina. They, yeah. I mean, you know, they stay on mission. Then they, they, you know, they, they communicate, they're talking, they can say what they want. And it's, there's a, there's a freedom in, in, in the broadcasts, you know, like we're, we're with we this. I appreciate the mention of us right now. It's how come we're the first Muslim Christian podcast? That, that was one of the comments we had we, we, in our conversations earlier. It, it, it's because we don't, we're afraid. There's, there's a, there's a, a fear of not, of keeping something going, having a long-term commitment to innovation. And, and even, even Matthew and I, when we started this thing, we talked about how we've we've been talking about for ten years, and we were nervous about it. We go, "What do you think is going to happen?" We didn't know if his tribe was going to revolt or my tribe was going to revolt, and and still we're muddling through. But um, it, it's it's uh, I think it's worth mentioning that the, the fear of innovation, the fear of dialogue, the the fear of of uh, public discourse uh, on a regular basis, not just a one off po- uh, uh, panel. Is is really important. It's a, and it's an important innovation that you mentioned in an article I read I, I read about you uh, uh, just uh, before we got on the podcast about how innovation, journalism, media, and you were touting on the VOA and how important it was. Uh, it's just it's it's strange, and the, I think it's very very um, it, it, it's very meaningful when you turn around and you 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 cite those numbers about ISIS and Yusuf. Uh, that's a problem. Yeah. It's also a problem, uh, John, because in the kinds of meetings uh, I have had with both State Department and and USERV, there's a lack of religious literacy, right? So a lot of Americans still think, unfortunately, that anyone with a turban is a is a Muslim, right? Uh, and in spite of 9/11, in spite of raising awareness about the Sikh religion. And religious literacy needs to be something that we bring into the schools and we bring into the Foreign Service. And actually part of the Wolf, uh, Frank Wolf Act, which was something that was passed last year, mandated uh, 
the, the Foreign Service to to have a level of religious literacy. I, I must say I'm quite shocked that this is the first podcast of a Christian and a Muslim talking to each other. And I do hope that you're able to uh, continue expanding this conversation because it is vital to our country as a pluralistic nation. And it is vital for the world to not only have uh, a sense of walking in each other's shoes when it comes to issues, but to have basic religious literacy to know, forgive me for saying this, that not all Muslims are terrorists. <laughs> not all Christian evangelicals are boring. That hasn't been disproved at all. All right, let's just start with date there. No. <laughs> Sorry, that was, that was awesome. I wasn't sure where you were going with that, Christina. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, I, I, I agree with you with religious literacy. I, I taught at FSI Foreign Services too for three years. I did is I, I was originally hired to do Islam in a in a Afghan context or a ex context, you know, Iraqi context, and we would have classrooms of. Uh, you know, 100, 150 people, 110 people. And so a lot of these are careers, career, career people. So it'd be from diplomats to military. And it's, I started talking about Islam in an Afghan context and, and people were like, well, let's, well, what's Islam? So then I had to develop an Islam 101 course. And then in that Islam 101 course, I started talking about, um, Abrahamic faiths and they were like, what's that? So I had to come up with an Abrahamic faiths course and I was scratching my head going, how, how, how are these people, career diplomats deployed all over the world, going to, you know, Jeddah, going to Saudi Arabia right. and Bangladesh yeah. and all, going to Nepal, and they have no idea, just basic, you know, Abrahamic face, what they, what they are, uh, let alone the core tenants and what kind of what's happening and who the players are, you know. And, uh, and this was, this is, this is not, I mean, I've been doing this 20 years, but this was back in, uh, I'm trying to think, like 2010. 2011 uh, to 2014, and and we're talking career diplomats, career military, uh, and and the people that were most receptive were the U.S. military. Uh, they were they were the mm -hmm. most receptive to it uh, because they were they you know they're not only boots on the ground but they're dealing directly with faith communities, not bunkered in any embassies uh, and at their desks. So, but uh, religion literacy, religious literacy is really important, and I think that people get scared. When you, when you say that because everybody says, well, you're going to try to convert or you're trying to it, – it's just like it's just like knowing something else that's putting people in situations in the context. And it makes all the difference. Yeah. And uh, to some of Christina's point, it doesn't so much shock me about the illiteracy of State Department necessarily, but it does shock me at this point in time, right? Just like uh, what you just laid out, John. Uh, but it's also after voices like Madeleine Albright said this is a problem. And uh, regardless of your politics, uh, you know, when Sean Casey was there under John Kerry with the religious affairs uh, group um, and, you know, the IRF office and, you know, has looked different across the past 20 years, but the IRF office has been around for, you know, 20 years now in the State Department. And yet the level of not only religious literacy, that's a big part of it, but I think it's a a willingness to recognize your own uh, religious illiteracy, like I try to do here, um, and be willing to be have that conversation. And so that's what's enabled this podcast, quite frankly, is I think John and I both had a willingness to be like, I don't know what you're talking about. Tell me more, right? 
is that well, some level we there's generally disagree, there's, but but the problem is right. we're not disagreeing on this one, but we generally disagree, but right. at least we still come back to each other and figure out what's happening, right? Right. But disagreement is a key factor for disruptive innovation, and we should not be afraid of it. I mean, we mm-hmm. all come at this with the idea that we're working towards the the same goal, which is understanding interfaith dialogue and uh, reiterating the importance of freedom of religion or belief or religious freedom to to others and to be inspired. One of the most inspiring stories I, I heard before I went on to the commission uh, was a story of Bill Browder, uh, who essentially has changed the world of, of human rights by demanding accountability to Russia and to Putin because Putin's thugs murdered his 37-year-old lawyer. And uh, are you familiar with the story? With Bill yeah. 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 So so Bill Browder is a hedge fund manager who is a multimillionaire and uh, essentially the Putin regime wanted to steal $230 million from him. So his yeah. lawyer, who was 37 at the time, uh, said, look, I can handle this within the judicial system in Russia. The lawyer was incarcerated. Uh, and essentially tortured to death and murdered. And as a hedge fund manager, this this man, Bill Browder, drops everything he's doing just to ensure that there's accountability. And as a result, Congress drafts the Global Magnitsky Act, which is now the Global um, uh, Human Rights Accountability Act, under which, for instance, uh, if a despot country like China or Russia is sending uh, saving uh, money in the United States, the United States can freeze their assets. It's being a magnificent form of accountability. And this is what commissioners at USERF were supposed to be. They were supposed to use their talents, expertise, and connections in order to ensure that human rights, religious freedom in particular, was protected uh, all over the world. And those discussions cannot happen unless someone like Bill Browder comes in and continuously pushes the door. I talked to Bill Browder a few weeks ago uh, in Congress, and I explained to him my frustration of having the bureaucrats at the Department of State and at USERP not move forward with innovation. And he said, look, it's like this all over the world. You just have to push forward. The future of disruption and innovation and human rights accountability depends on people that are willing to do what you're doing, create a podcast so we can have these conversations Uh, People who are willing to engage where the fight is. The fight right now for democracy and freedom, religious freedom, is in technology and in social media. The Chinese are using facial recognition technology that we, the United States, develop Mm -hmm. in order to press the rights of Muslims and Christians. How did that happen? How did we allow the Department of Commerce to promote a U.S. company to the Chinese government so that they could sell their services to use facial recognition. So this is why human rights and religious freedom, it's something that has to be discussed across the board in every single government agency, not only the Department of State, not only in Congress, and certainly not only at USERP. The story about the Chinese and the facial recognition software, uh, the technology coming from the U.S. is absolutely stunning to me. We've had we've had those problems with companies still serving the Chinese government, and we still are talking about whether how to address companies that do business with totalitarian regimes, and we still haven't reached an agreement on how we should deal with them. 
it's and that's you know that's it, it speaks to the bureaucratic elements about you know st- you know stunting a you know a a, a a core freedom and founding principle of our country which is supposed we're supposed to be projecting all over the world you know so all right so the the Christina I'm gonna put you on the spot for me so we got this we got this this bill and it's 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 broadening the mission which dilutes the 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 purpose and and intent and and abilities of of user and then we've got this other element where it's it's uh um it's creating a more bureaucratic structure so so staff can intervene and and really uh put an umbrella over the over the the commissioners Tell us, tell us this, like your, you know, sexiest, like, like a, a really big win while you were a commish, and and what's what's something that's really positive here from your experience coming out of it, where, you know, because you talked a little bit about bipartisan and everything else. I mean, is this the re- release of Pastor Brunson, or is there, is you know, what's 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 the commission look like when it's running efficiently and it's running, or inefficiently to the put to the point where it's gonna it makes a difference. Thank you so much for asking me that question. As a problem solver, I tend to focus on the areas that need problem solving uh, rather than on the areas that do not. I had uh, magnificent, uh, inspiring experiences as a commissioner. And I must say that when I realized I had to resign, I was heartbroken uh, because the privilege of working with people who are suffering because of religious persecution is you meet the most amazing heroes you'll ever want to meet. You meet ordinary people who are doing extraordinary things. Uh, So yes, one of the highlights was walking into that prison interrogation room and seeing Andrew Brunson, who had lost 50 pounds, who was a shadow of a man that I had seen in pictures. And for him to to sit there and, and weep and say, I don't want to be forgotten. And I remember thinking, what can I do? I'm a volunteer commissioner with no policymaking power. Uh, and I remembered that Andrew speaks Spanish because his parents were missionary in Mexico. So I talked to him in Spanish and I said, my father suffered from debilitating depression when he had to leave Cuba and his homeland and he was in excellent Puerto Rico and he was hot and muggy and he didn't have any money and he had three little kids and he decided that all he had to do was take one step at a time and in Spanish it's called paso a paso and he said he would get up in the morning and all he focused on was making it to the sink and he would then brush his teeth and then he would only focus on the next step which was getting dressed and ready to go and he endured the the terrible depression that came from being exiled by doing that, paso a paso. Well, I didn't think Andrew was listening or receptive because he was so distraught, but he wrote, he wrote me from prison several times using those words, paso a paso. So humbly, my humble contribution to, to that visit, he told me later in person had sustained him some, through some pretty dark moments and what a great story to hear and, and what a great person to meet. I met women in Saudi Arabia who 
were fierce about defending their rights there, about getting rid of guardianship. These were women that were Western educated, had law degrees from top tier schools in the United States and the UK, and they wanted to go back to their country to reform it from within. And I also met people who had survived incredible things, uh, a torturing prison, um, had told me that they had felt God's presence in every corner of their, their cell. And all those stories inspired me to, to continue in the fight and actually to resign. I was on the fence of whether or not I should do this or not. The week that Vladimir Bukovsky died, he was a, a Russian who had been in prison several times because he was a dissident and he was tortured. He wrote a great book called To Build a Castle. And the fact that he was able to to go to prison so many times and stand up where he was right. And I thought, I'm being such a wimp by not doing what is right. I didn't want people to hate me. I didn't want my own party to be mad at me because I had given up by leaving the Republican-controlled commission. Now it's 4-4, so they no longer control the commission. I didn't want the Democrats to think that I was, I don't know, standing up for what was right with somehow being proud. But then I remembered that fierce woman in Saudi Arabia and Andrew talking to me in prison. And I thought the worst thing that can happen is that this is going to be politically not expedient, but I'm going to my air conditioned home to plug in my iPhone and to eat a meal. And those are all things that many people around the world have given up in order to defend this right of religious freedom. So the reason I resigned was to call attention to the bill. The reason I resigned was to push back on the bureaucracy. And I don't know if I'll be successful or not, but this I knew that I couldn't sit in my hands and remain silent because that silence in my mind was a form of complicity. We all come in alone into this world. We all leave alone. I'm going to have to live with my decisions in my old age and when I die. And I didn't want to be on my deathbed and regret that I didn't step up to the plate to defend the people that are going to suffer because of this bill. When I was at the American Islamic Congress, we uh, led the, the, the NGO uh, civil society uh, campaign against uh, to, to reauthorize you because it was so important for the, the survival uh, of Yusuf, even though there was a lot of criticisms of it. But, you know, you have our podcast at the disposal. If you want me to make a sandwich board and have have Matthew walking on Cap Hill, I'm all for that. Uh, <laughs> you know, so I, I, I know the three of us all believe in it. Um, so, you know, we let's 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 utilize our platform um, to to, you know, to start to, to springboard. Um, this this protest that you've that you've started, um, and and I think it's um, it's important for us to kind of you know operationalize some of this where we can put up the issue and and can uh, get the word out uh, and and even though we have a small constituency, this makes this makes a, a good good podcast. And what do you think there, Matthew? I I think we've we've uh, utilized Christina's time long enough. Uh, is there anything any other question? Uh, we haven't said or anything you want to pen to uh, your remarks so far? We're an inflection point in the world. Uh, we see China putting Muslims 
estimated two to three million Muslims in concentration camps. Uh, China, which was also supposed to be by 2030, the country with the largest Christian population in the world has been repressing uh, Christians uh, since 2016 in savage ways. We see the island of, of Cuba. I mean, our own US government is given visas to the person, the communist government official who represses religious groups in Cuba. She comes here to shop and to visit her family, but pastors who want to attend a theological conference in the United States are not allowed to leave Cuba. All of these people who are repressed and suffering because of their religious beliefs depend on you, sir. They depend on the Department of State to lift their stories uh, so that they can be advocated for. The State Department has been tremendously innovative and for the first time in American history has held two meetings at the minister level to address religious freedom alone. Uh, the ambassador at large religious freedom, Sam Brambach, has done an incredible job partnering with non-government organizations. We're going to have over 100 religious freedom roundtables around the world. So USERF needs to move to the 21st century, engage people where they are fighting for their rights, that is in social media and in technology. And the Senate needs to recognize that the idea of nine independent disruptive commissioners was a genius idea yeah. and that they must continue to lead the staff of user rather than have to ask for permission slips to even attend a meeting. I'm, I'm greatly hopeful because I have great hope in the American people and great hope in our system that that user will not only survive but thrive and the independence of user will continue so it can continue mm -hmm. to be a government watchdog beautifully said Christina your conversation mm -hmm. is as I had hoped and anticipated uh, thank you for taking the time to be on crossing phase I don't know. You said you were nervous that a Cuban and a New Yorker were going to be on a podcast with a boring evangelical. Well, to be I was fair, so well behaved. I, I'll be honest with you, I, I, so well behaved. I, I did. You know? I did not say nervous. I just said I was going to have my work cut out for me for keeping our conversation <laughs> focused. But you two did very well. I didn't have to. I didn't have to like uh, re pull us back from too many rabbit trails. So this was good. You guys we nailed did. it. Yeah, we didn't get on too crazy, <laughs> but really appreciate your time and really appreciate the, the thoughtfulness of your of your words. You know, when it comes to religious freedom, it's such an ambiguous thing, and you've succinctly sort of brought it in and, and grounded it with real stories that, made, that, are, that are meaningful about how the commission is effective and what it means to not only Americans, but, but the world. So I really appreciate your time, Christina. Thank you. Thank you. This has been Crossing Phase with Matt Hawkins and John Penna, a podcast of Roll Top Productions. If you like what you hear and would like to help defray the cost of the show, consider sponsoring us on Patreon by visiting CrossingPhase.com. Crossing Phase is available on all your favorite podcast outlets, including iTunes, Google Podcast, Overcast, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and TuneIn. We'd appreciate your review of our program, especially in the iTunes store. Let us know what you think of the show via Twitter, at MTHawk, at JTPinna, or at CrossingPhase. Music for this episode is courtesy Vajra, whose music is available at thevajratemple.com, Spotify, iTunes, and Amazon. Show notes for this episode and more are available at crossingfaiths.com. Crossing Phase.